The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Now we are progressing through the Sermon on the Mount, the King's Sermon, and we're coming to a wonderful section on prayer. And this will be a subsection of the Sermon on the Mount, the King's this series, and we'll call it Learning to Pray. And folks, it's very important for us to learn how to pray because there will be a time, if you might not have it already, it will come, that for God to answer your prayer will be the most important thing to you on this earth. And again, we can learn lots of things, but we can learn nothing better than learning how to pray. And we don't have a proper need That prayer can't supply, a proper failure in our life that a prayer could have prevented. And proper uh, prayer also helps us when we have heartaches, tears, fears, that helps us heal, soothe, to bless. So here Jesus comes to verses 9 and he is teaching us how to pray. And verse 9, he begins and says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And today we're just going to be looking at verse 9 and says, In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer begins with the recognition that God is our Father. And it's a very amazing thing to me because, you know, he could have said, you must pray this way, you know, mighty God, majestic Lord, our maker, our king, our protector, a righteous judge, but here he says, our Father. And folks, we need to understand that, I don't know if you know this, modern theology, there's a move to remove the idea of God being a Father, as a Father. So there's already a lot of churches that change this, and they speak of God in terms of female. So you will hear them pray, not our Father in heaven, they'll say our mother, or our parent in heaven. And you say, well, that's ridiculous, right? Well, I'll say amen. But let me read to you what a former dean of Vanderbilt University Divinity School said. His name is Joseph Hugh, and in his speeches, he alternates. He uses he or she when referring to God. And he says, I don't think anyone would want to defend the view of that God values males more than females. But that's exactly what traditional language does. So he's talking about calling God Father to just simply traditional language. And there's also a book by a feminist theologian. It's called Beyond God the Father. I don't know if any of you read it or heard about it. But the title itself already says, we moved past that, beyond God the Father. And in that book, she states, if God is male, then male is God. So all these things, all these theologians 
they go and change. There's a move to change this prayer, not as Jesus taught, but as we put in our heads. And there's a Greek word for that, baloney. Everybody's familiar with that. When Jesus says also, folks, you know, God is the Father, some people teach that when you say God is the Father, you're gender biased and you're racially biased. And shame on you and shame on Jesus and assisting on praying God is the Father, we're sinning, we're committing all kinds of, you know, we, we, we've worshipped the actual word, the Father, and, and that's idolatry. And the most classic piece of doublespeak I ever heard is, it says this, the way to respect the original words is to retranslate them as our understanding of their meaning changes. So basically, you know, you, you change it. You don't like the way God says it. You change it to the way you like it, and then you accept it. And that's what's happening, folks, in Christianity today. So when Jesus also taught us how to pray, he says, our Father, we need to understand he's not just telling us, you know, the title Father. It's not what God is like, but it's telling us what God is. It's not what God is like. He's not like a father. He is a father. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom all things, and we for him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So the verse is not talking about what God is like. It's telling us what God is. He also referenced this in Ephesians 4, 6, where it says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we need to understand when it says... Our Father also, folks. God is not the Father of everybody. You know, sometimes people look at Malachi 2.10 and say, we have not one, all fa one Father, has not one God created us. And Paul, they reference Acts 17.28, and they say, for in him we live and move and have our being, and also some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So sometimes you will hear, you know, the universal fatherhood of, of uh, God or, or the, you know, maybe even the motherhood of God and so forth and brotherhood of men, the fellowship of men. But folks, God is not the father of all people. And sometimes people say, well, didn't God create us all? Yeah. God is the creator all, of all beings, but he's not the father of all beings. God also created rats cockroaches, rabbits. He's not their father. He's their creator. And matter of fact, when he was addressing the same Jewish leaders who opposed him, in John 8, in verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil and desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, we don't become his children, and he does not become our father by creation. 
but he becomes our father by conception when we're born again into his family. In Galatians 3.26, we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in John 1.12, it says, But as many has received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. That's the way we become his children. That's the way he becomes our father. So really, there's two families. So when God says here, Jesus teaches us, says, our father in heaven, it eliminates the unbelieving world. Now, when Jesus says, pray like this, our father in heaven, it's not something new. It's not a new concept for them. And really, everything in this prayer is from kind of the Old Testament. For example, they knew of something of what that meant when he says, our father in heaven. If you look at Isaiah 64, 5, he reads and he says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you your ways. You are indeed angry. So he's talking about God. God is angry. For we have sinned in these ways we continue and we need to be saved. He says, we, we've sinned. You're angry at us. And then he gives graphic terms in verse 6. He says, we're all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like a filthy rags. We all fade as leaf in our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So he's saying, God, we've sinned. We're a mess. We're sinful people. We've drifted away far from you. We behave in improper ways. And then in verse 7 he says, And there's no one who calls on your name, who steers himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have consumed us because of our iniquities. Not only we're in a mess, but God, we can't even find you. We don't, nobody seeks you. You don't answer us. We can't see you. It's a pretty desperate situation. But then look at verse 8. But he says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. You are our Father. So Isaiah reminded them of this reality that God was their Father and he would take care of them. So they understood something of a concept, what Jesus is referring to. But let me go briefly some things that they Jews believed what Jesus is referring to. They might have forgotten over time, but first, he was the father of their nation. They viewed him as the father of the nation. It's First Chronicles 29.10 says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. So Lord God of Israel is our father. So he begotten the nation, if you would. He is a father of Israel. Also, they also when they thought of a father, it always meant that he was near. I'm not going to read to you the whole psalm, but if you read the Psalm 68, and there's this great discussion about God's power, his, his righteousness, and he's being on a high hill. There's God riding on chariots and high clouds and all this power and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, and then in verse 5 it says, and a father of the fatherless, defender of widows, and God is his holy habitation. So they knew God is up there on the hill doing his thing, if you will, 
but he's also father of the fatherless. He also, they also understood that he was a gracious father. In Psalm 103.13, we read, As the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So they understood that he was gracious, forgiving. There was also a reminder for them that father does what? He guides his children, right? A father leads his children and gives them wisdom and instruction. So this was also true of God's relationship to Israel. If you look at Jeremiah 31.9, says, They shall come with weeping and with supplications. And he says, I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers or waters in the straight way which shall be not stumble. And he says, For I am a father to Israel. So he's their guide. And they also, if he's a father, and what does every father require of his children? Obedience, right? In Deuteronomy 32, 6, God says, Do you thus deal with the Lord of foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who brought to you? He's not made you and established you? Basically, they were disrespecting their father. And he's saying, is this the way you treat your father? And folks, because of this continued disobedience to God through the centuries, including tolerating sin, Jews have broken off all kinds of relationships with God as their father, that intimate relationship. They lost that father concept because they became more remote from him. You know, it was them that moved, not God. And they moved away from true religion. They moved away from true worship. They started tolerating sin. They actually came up with a system that allows them to sin, as we discussed in previous sermons. Doesn't that sound like modern Christianity today? They developed this system and lost the sense of God as a father. And they viewed him more on a national level than a personal relationship with him. So, you know, they waited on Jesus or God's son to come over and he's going to overthrow Rome and the nation of Israel is going to be the ruling uh, nation on earth and they're going to establish the kingdom. So that's what they were kind of viewing, but not that personal intimacy relationship. And the reason I say that, they lost that kind of a relationship because you see it in the disciples. Do you remember Philip? Philip in 14.8 says, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Do you see? Show us the Father. So they lost that concept of that intimate relationship that they had with God. And Jesus answers in verse 9, says, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus is bringing back that intimacy that they lost. So when Jesus says these words, our Father in heaven, folks, it was kind of shocking to them because he's reintroducing this thing that they should have known, this new kind of intimacy that they never had understood over centuries because it was lost. And when Jesus arrived, 
He's reintroducing God as a loving father to those who love and obey him. And actually in chapter 7, he discusses this further and he teaches them that the father takes care of their needs and the needs of his children. In verse chapter 7, verse 7 through 11, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his sons asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? So Jesus just reaffirmed to them what their scriptures taught and what true believing Jews really believed. God is the Father in heaven to those who trust in his name. So when we approach God in our prayer as a lovingly Father, what it implies for me at least, and I'm going to share with you at least several things in our prayers. First, it dispels fear. You see, they, they had many pagan gods. And as I brought up, you know, Baal and so forth. Well, all these gods were to be feared. All of them had to do something for them because all these uh, pagan gods were characterized as vengeful, jealous, needed human sacrifice. They sacrificed their own children and so forth. But knowing the true God as our Father removes all that fear. And there is actually a missionary, Stan Dale. I don't know if you guys read the book. It's called The Lord, Lords of the Earth. And it talks about he went to a tribe, cannibals, and so forth, and he introduced them to the loving God instead of the fearing God who they had to sacrifice females and children and so forth. And he changed their way of thinking and introduced them to the gospel. So when Jesus says our Father, he puts end to fear. We don't have to fear God in a scringing kind of way. Now, there is fear, and we'll talk about that later, but it's more has to do with reverence. And we come to his as Father, folks, it encourages hope. It gives us hope. And folks, in this hostile world that's falling apart, God will take care of our future right? Everything's falling apart, but we can be safe, and there's hope in our future. And again, if we read the 11th verse, it says, our Father who's in, in heaven, give you good things to those who ask. So there's hope. And folks, also, it removes loneliness. There's a lot of lonely people in the world. They feel like nobody wants them, nobody wants to talk to them. But knowing God as the Father will remove your feeling of loneliness. Because in Hebrews 13, 5, we read, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know God really does love fellowship with us? You know, we have daughter-father relationships, father-son relationships, and those relationships are wonderful, aren't they? In Galatians 4, 6, Paul writes this, And because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And in Romans 8.15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. There you go. It removes that fear. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom you, we cry out, Abba, Father. As much as I don't like to go over this, but I have to tell you, do you, do you know what Abba means? Abba means daddy. You know, there's a lot of preaching that's taking this out of context, but that's what that word means. He's your daddy. Daddy, father. Have you ever thought of God as being your daddy? And for those that have children, how did you feel when they said, daddy, daddy, and they're running to you? You want to have that loving relationship. But again, I want to be cautious here because there's a lot of daddy, daddy, God type of sermons going on that are completely taken out of context. But at the same time, folks, think about it. God of the universe, right? Holding up planets, stars, the sun, running the universe, doing all those things that God does. And yet, he has time to spend with us in, when we pray, when we have that alone time. Think about it. I mean, if you try to get an appointment with a president, you probably will never get one, right? But you want an appointment with God, all you have to do is pray, anytime, anywhere. So the fatherhood of God settles the matter of loneliness. Then, folks, it also reminds us not to be selfish when we approach Father God because it says, not my God or my Father, it's our Father in heaven. So when we pray, as Paul put it in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with prayer and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance in supplication for what? For all saints. So when we pray, our prayers should not be self-centered. We should encompass everybody around us, especially the believing community. And folks, when we say our Father in heaven, when we come to him in prayer, we need to understand there's resources. There's resources of heaven, folks. Resources of heaven available to us when we trust God as our heavenly supplier. And Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So folks, when we come to him and sincerely, we want to seek his glory. And then we ask our, make our supplications needs when we ask for peace in our hearts, when we ask for wisdom from above, when we ask for boldness to stand up for his name. God has abundant supply, power of what you need to get you through. Again, we must pray how? When you ask in my name, that will glorify God the Father. Because a lot of us pray and we don't get any answers or we don't get anything because as James put in James 4, 3, it says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. And you want to spend it on your own pleasures. And again, when we come to him in our prayers, we need to remember it requires obedience. 
the whole point of fatherhood, again, I'm going to talk about obedience several times. If Jesus is God's son and he came down from heaven, did he do his own will? No. It says he became obedient and obedient even to the point of death. And also in John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And folks, obedience to God is one of the supreme marks in our Christian life that says we are his children and he is our father. So being a prayer, a father in heaven, is to indicate my eagerness to come to him as a child that, that is loved by a loving father and to receive everything his love can possibly give me. And at the same time, he is eager to lend his ear, to listen to my prayer, supplications, give us blessing if it serves us best and further reveals his purpose and glory. Now, folks, if God is our Father, and again, I kind of scrunch all those things, but it's more than that. We can talk about it, God being our Father for hours and hours. But if he's the one that removes fears, provides hopes, uh, ends loneliness, provides wisdom, provides all those things to us, and demands obedience as a loving Father, how appropriate then, in my opinion, that the first petition that we see here is focused on God. Hallowed be your name. Look at Matthew 6, 9 again. In this matter, therefore, pray, your Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, sometimes being raised in church, many of you as I have, we uttered the word hallow lots of times and fumbled through the Lord's prayer and so forth. But I wonder if we really, really understand what it truly means. Because when we understand or have a concept of what it truly means, it opens up a whole other dimension of respect, reverence, appreciation, honor, and glory, adoration of our God. See, there's a concept of name. And today we think of somebody's name John, right? There's millions of Johns. What's in the name? It's just a name. It really doesn't mean much other than the name itself, right? Now, in biblical times, there were meanings, like Cornet means God's blessing. I just made that up. I really have no idea what it means. I'm just trying to wake you guys up because everybody must be cold or something sleeping here. Matter of fact, I have no idea what it means in growing up and going through middle school and high school. I had to tell people my parents were hippies, you know, kind of cornet. But there's other cornets in the world, right? Maybe like two. But uh, behind the name, cornet, John, whatever, one can believe God and one cannot believe God, but their name is John, John, right? So in the name, it doesn't really mean anything. But in the Scripture, we need to understand it how Hebrews see it. And especially when referring to God, the names of God is just not just the names. There's meaning behind it, meaning who he is. 
not what he is like or anything like that, who he is. So, you know, they also try to give him honor by not saying, you know, the words Jehovah, Yahweh, and so forth. They try to avoid those names. So when they gave respect to the actual name, if you would, they dishonored his person by disobeying his word, scriptures. So by focusing our thoughts on God's name, Jesus is teaching us that God's name signifies to us more than just his titles. It represents all that he is, his character, his plan, his will. And really, Jews should have understand that because, again, in the Old Testament times, names stood for more than just titles. It scriptures name represented their character, right? You know, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments for the second time, read with me in Exodus 34, uh, verses 5 through 7. And it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clear, clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of our fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, the name of God is a combination of all those characteristics. You see, that that's our love and trust of God is not based on his names or titles, but the reality behind those names, his character, right? So if you look at Psalm 9, verse 10, David said, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So you see, it talks about God as being faithful. Faithfulness. In Psalm 20, verse 7, says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. So here, in this psalm, when he just says the name of the Lord, well, which name? And here refers to the fullness of God's person. So I know in the Old Testament, many of you know these names, Jehovah Jireh, right? Lord will provide and so forth. They had many of those, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner and so forth. All those names speak of God's attributes, if you will. And they tell us not only who he is, but also what he is, what he is like. And look what he says. When Christ came into the world, and especially his disciples, what was Christ really doing in human form? He was manifesting his Father. You look at his prayer in 17.6. He says, I have manifested your name to men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and have kept your word. He says, I have manifested your name to men for whom you given to me. So God, you know, Jesus was not sitting there and telling them about these names. He was manifesting those names. And again, as we read in John 14, 9, he says, 
Philip, you've been with me this long and you haven't seen the Father? I've been manifesting him all this time, all these names. So Jesus himself provides the clearest teaching about what God's names mean. And not only those Old Testament names, but we know the greatest name is Jesus Christ, a name above all names. But when Jesus was on his earthly ministry, we find, especially in the book of John, right, he gets these names. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? We read he is the resurrection. He's the good shepherd, bright morning star, and so on. So Jesus' life was the perfect manifestation of God's name. But how to hollow God's name? How do, how do we do that? Because we looked at, briefly, the significance of the names, how they understood it originally, the Jews. But how do we do that in our lives? So that word, hollow, meaning to make holy, to sanctify. So, well, first thing, God commands his people to be holy, right? He says in 1 Peter 1.16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. But the thing is, only God himself is actually holy. To pray, hallowed be thy name here, is an attribute to God's holiness that already is. We don't make his name holy. We don't make him more holier in our prayers, if you would. He's always been holy. To hallow God's name to, means to bring honor, glory, to obey him, because he's the only one that's completely perfect and holy. And when we do that, folks, you know what happens? When we enter the presence of God, his holiness, there's a big difference between us and him. We will see how sinful we truly are. He is holy and undefiled. We are sinners. And folks, it's through his gracious even provisions that through Jesus Christ and his payment for sin on the cross that we are able to even approach him and approach his holy throne in prayer. You enter in the presence of God when you pray, and you're in this holy presence. And folks, you know, I think there's issues with Christianity, especially in America these days, how shallow it's become and so forth. But there's nothing more to me that's more disturbing, and it is the failure in churches to recognize the most central truth about God. And that truth is that he is holy. We don't preach about holiness of God. He is holy. That's the fundamental attribute. But yet it's the least preached. And folks, his holiness was actually elevated to the third degree. If we read Isaiah 6.3, it says, And one cried another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's how holy he is. He has to repeat it three times. And Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, we, we read, No one is holy like the Lord. 
for there is no one besides you, nor there is any rock like our God. No one's holy like our Lord. In Exodus 15, 11 reads, Who is like you, O Lord, among the, other, the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And you see, the problem is, especially with Christian world, and again, you know, the problem is not the world, it's, it's us. It's how we manifest God to the world. And the problem with Christianity is we fail to see God as a holy God. And we fail to see his holiness. And because we have little understanding of his holiness, we will have little understanding of how sinful we are. And folks, the modern gospel denigrated everything about happiness, health, wealth, and those things. Little about righteousness. You know, we know a story about Job, right? In Job 1, 1, uh, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that name was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And I believe in verse 5, you know, the devil comes to God, and he says, Hey, have you seen my servant out there, Job? He's blameless and so forth. He was a good Christian in our terms, right? But when you get to chapter 42, it's interesting. In verses 5 and 6, he says, I have heard of you by hearing of the year. So he was a good Christian, right? He's heard of God by hearing of the year. But then he says, but now my eyes see you. He sees more clearly God's holiness. And in verses, he says, Therefore, I abhorred myself and repent in dust and ashes. Why? Because he's seen the Lord God more than he did previously. He's heard of him. Read about him. I don't know. Just saying those things, comparing them today. People hear, hear about God. They hear about the Bible. But until they see or have this intimate relationship with him and completely grow and be sanctified as you see him more holy, folks, you will find more sin to be repented of that you need to. You'll say, hey, I repent. And we need to understand that God takes this very, very seriously. He doesn't just point out and says, hallowed be your name for no reason. We are to give God reverence and honor because he's the only one that deserves it. And when we don't, we suffer consequences. We do. Maybe right away, maybe later. But let me show you what happened to one of the greatest servants that doesn't treat his name with respect. And I'm sure you guys heard of this story. This is about Moses and the rock and the water. And Numbers 20, verses 1 through 12 says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed Kadesh, and Miriam died there and buried, was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Folks, it's not just a little group of people. <laughs> He's leading a nation through the desert, right? And they, he has to put up with all these people 
So you can see he's getting a little edgy, right? And the people contended in verse 3 with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we have died when our brethren died before the Lord, why have you brought us the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our own animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain or figs or wine or primergants. There's no water to drink. So all this complaining, what does Moses do in Aaron? Well, they did the right thing. So Moses and Aaron went to the presence of assembly in the door tabernacle meeting. They fell on their face, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So they were praying. They were taking all their needs up to prayer, and God answered it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from the Lord, before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. What did God say? Speak to the rock. Saying, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock Twice with his rod, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And then verse 12 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in Nairn, and he says, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Well, what do you mean? Can't you understand? I'm a little frustrated here. All these people, you know, nagging me for water. We don't have bread or whatever. I'm just doing the best I can, God. But if you look at the New American Standard Bible version, I like that a little bit better so we understand. And it says, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. You see, they didn't treat his name as holy. They dishonored God before the Israelites. He struck the rock in direct disobedience. He didn't tell them to struck it. And he said, must we take in glory away from God and putting on himself. So really, he stole glory from God. Do you see how we don't even pay attention to that when we do that? Because he acting in the way God did not want him to act. That's not hollowing his name. Remember David? Committed the act of adultery. Said, for your sins you will not die and so forth. But because, in 2 Samuel 12, 14, but because you've given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who will be born will die. Because you gave an occasion to my enemies to treat 
my name is not holy. There's a consequence. And we find this all over the scripture. Saul did not submit. You know, Ananias and Sapphira tried to hide things and lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, said, you're participating in communion in an unworthy matter, unholy matter, and many of you fall asleep, meaning they die. God always, folks, has called his people to have such a perspective and this awesomeness of his holiness. In Ezekiel 36, 23, he says, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am Lord, says Lord God, when I am hallowed in your eyes before your eyes. See, again, if we look at the, the uh, NSAB version, it says, I will vindicate my holiness. And then he says, when I prove myself holy among you in their sights. So, folks, when we, uh, in all God's names, his character is revealed. So, it describes who he is. He is a holy God. And we need to pursue this holiness as we read. And the reason most of us kind of put this on the back burner is because we don't have the fear of God, the proper fear of God, giving him reverence. This is what I was talking about, treat, you know, going a little bit too far with Abba Father, Daddy God, you know, he's the their daddy that provides everything that they need and all that kind of stuff. They can act any way they want. Uh, there's a lot of sermons that preach a sissified Jesus. I think I shared that before. Oh, come to him. He can't live without you. He needs you. He loves you. Come to him. It sounds like, you know, you're going to do Jesus a favor by becoming his friend. And when you are his friend, you know, you're not going to go to hell. And because you're his friend, he's going to give you anything you ask in his name. Where's the reverence to his name? When Proverbs clearly tells us, especially in 23, 17, it says, live in fear of the Lord always. In Matthew 10, 28, we're reminded, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So, folks, again, in order to hallow God's name, we must pursue holiness. Holiness in the fear of God. Even going back to the, New, uh, the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, what? It's not a new concept in the New Testament. Speak to the congregation, tell them, you shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. That didn't change in the New Testament either. Peter reminded us of the same thing. In 1 Peter 1.15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, all your conduct. And then he reminds them of this scripture in the Old Testament, verse 16, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So what's the challenge for Christ's church today? And for us to really 
hallow God's name when we come to him in prayers. I think it's well put in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You pursue holiness at the same time in the fear of God, giving reverence to him. And folks, we need to pursue holiness. You know why? Because Bible tells us Without holiness, nobody will see God. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people. And it says, in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So folks, to hallow God's name when we come to him in prayer, as like with any manifestation that comes out, it has to start in the heart. It has to start in the heart. In order for us to hallow his name, the first step, folks, is trust him, come to him, accept him as Lord and Savior. In Psalm 33, 21, it says, For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. And then we need to sanctify our hearts, keep our hearts pure, holy. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And folks, when we sanctify Christ in our hearts, we will also sanctify him in our lives. Second, we really need to acknowledge that he exists. You can't hollow somebody if, or if, you, if you don't know that he exists. He exists. If you look at all creation, sun, moon, stars, and so forth, you know, you can't say just some explosion came or whatever. You know, I think I used the example, you take a watch apart, then you put it in a big trash bag, then you shake it, and one day it will all come together. No, there was a watchmaker that put it all together. God put all this together. It didn't just fly around and hit each other and also, then how come monkeys are like not turning into humans continually? You know, just where's the logic? So God exists. So in Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God, he says, must believe that he is, that he exists. Don't believe in something that's not there. God is there. He's true. He exists. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But even that's not enough, folks. More people claim to believe God, and we don't hollow or demonstrate his characteristics in our lives because we have very little knowledge of who God really is. So not only that he exists, but we must study the scriptures, understand the truth about God, understand the difference between wrong doctrine like the you know, the parent in heaven versus the father in heaven. We must know those things. People think taking God's name in vain is uh, cursing. You know, that's not taking, that's not hallowing his name. But let me tell you something else. When you doubt God, you're not hallowing his name. Because when you doubt God, you're saying God is not trusting. Well, is that one of his attributes? Never. When we say, God, how... God must be not loving. 
because all this evil is happening, right? School shootings and so forth. How can God allow this? Or how can God send people to hell? God is not loving. You're not hallowing his name. Because we forget. Why do people go to hell? Because God is holy, and they're not. We forget those things. Even Job, when he had his situation, he even fell to that temptation. In Job 30, 21, he says, but you have been become cruel to me. He's talking to God. Has God ever been cruel to anybody in the Scriptures? No, because God is holy. God is just. That's it. Never been cruel. And folks, in our lives, we also must be aware of his presence. You know, sometimes we don't hallow his name if we just remember him once a week on Sundays. Most of you right now are probably thinking about God. But what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Do you just give him a, you know, a shout-out here and there? We must always sense his presence in our lives. Folks, you know... Let me tell you, some of us are not fooling really anybody with our dedication to the church, to God, because God sees the heart. So you can fake it all you want, but only you'll be lying to yourself. So you need to do daily Bible studies. Whatever you got to do, you have to have a daily walk with God. You have to be aware of his presence. In Psalm 16, 8, David reminds us, says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. God is with him at all times. Why? Because he set him before him. And again, if we are to come to him in prayer, hallow his name, folks, we need to live in obedience. Obedience to the scriptures. Because both our doctrine and our lives might need to come together. Can't say one thing and live another way. And because Christians live in disobedience, we become hypocrites because we say we love our God and so forth. And sometimes people say, well, I can't, I don't know the entire Bible. I can't obey it all because I don't know it all. Well, start obeying the parts you do know and God will open up to you other parts of the scripture that you need to obey. Obey what you do know. Jesus spoke of these kind of people in Matthew 15, 8, said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But where is the true manifestation or change takes place? In the heart. And he says, their heart is far from me. And we need to remember, as he pointed out also in Matthew 7, 21, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter my kingdom. But he who does the will of my Father, where? In heaven. So you can't say, Lord, 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 not be obedient, not pay attention to his will. It's not your will. Jesus came and did his will. His will of my Father in heaven. So, folks, when we disobey God, we diminish our capacity to really revere, show reverence, for his name or be a vehicle to manifest his holiness. 
And Paul reminds in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, everything we do, drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And we studied in Matthew 5, 16, says, let your light shine before all men, that they see your good works. Glorify who? You? No, our Father who is in heaven. And folks, we also honor his name by our true commitment. When we are truly committed to worship, truly committed to sacrifice, giving, and everything, all those things we talked about, faithful church attendance. You know, some, somebody said to me the other day, well, I love God, I just don't, don't love the church. <laughs> Seriously. Well, if you love God, you're going to love what God loves, and God loves the church because he died for it. So how can you not love the church? In Psalm 96, 8, we, we, we read, Give to the Lord the glory due to his name, right? Bringing an offering, sacrifices, and so forth, and come to his courts. Come to church, if you would. So, folks, the next time we pray, I hope we see ourselves entering the throne room of God, who is a holy God, a holy place, where he is to be honored, not just in that prayer, but in our lives when we come to him, and we shouldn't be afraid to enter that presence because he is a loving father. But we do have to approach it with respect and do pay him respect in his holy name. And I'll end with this verse in 34.3. It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray.